And as you are, Mark chapter 7. Let's go right to the Word of God this morning. Mark 7 is where we are. Beginning of the chapter. We're going to study through verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let's read it together. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity that we have as a local assembly of yours to come together to worship you, to already have the joy of witnessing a a faith step from a young man who has decided to follow you, to give his life to you, Jesus, and has proclaimed that to us by being obedient with believer's baptism. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the joy that that gives us as his church to see that, to witness that. Father, we thank you for the time of singing and the time of worship that you have given to us, Lord. And we pray that our worship this morning has been in spirit and in truth. We pray that we are uplifting the name of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone because we've been given no other name from heaven by which we can be saved. And we are so thankful this morning for the great salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence with us today. Thank you that you are with us to bring the word of God alive in our minds, Lord. And that's our prayer right now. Help us to understand it and then to live by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you might have noticed in our study of Mark in his gospel so far, that he uses a lot more ink to talk about what Jesus did than to talk about what Jesus said. He focuses more on the actions of Christ than he does on the teaching of Christ, uh, much more so than the other gospel authors. 
If you were to read, and of course I would encourage this, if you, as we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, read those parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke and in John. But what you'll quickly notice is that Matthew, Luke, and John spent a lot of time on lengthy teaching discourses that Christ gives, where Mark doesn't do that typically. Mark focuses on action. I mean, think about what we've studied so far over the last several months in this gospel. Uh, We looked at a couple of parables, and you can just glance back through the last few chapters to see this. We we studied a couple of parables back in chapter 4, but mostly Mark has been very focused on what Jesus did. However, here in chapter 7, he does again record some teaching from Jesus, and it's in response to an accusation that has been brought against him. And so let's begin to work through this verse by verse this morning. So Mark 7, uh, verse 1 is where we are. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, remember that the scribes mentioned here in the text are teachers of the law. These are highly educated men, highly influential, and most likely this is an official delegation that has come up from the capital city. They've come from Jerusalem. They've traveled that 90 miles, not an easy journey, from Jerusalem to Capernaum, either on foot or horseback or whatever the case might be, but definitely not in a nice SUV. We know that for certain. They've traveled that 90 miles up from there, and that suggests to me that they were pretty motivated, pretty motivated to observe Jesus and to look for an opportunity to bring an accusation against him. And this is the reason for their coming. They want the opportunity to confront him, either in something that he does or something that he teaches. And if indeed this was their intention, they were successful. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law that travel this distance to confront Christ indeed have this opportunity. They find a reason to bring an accusation against him. Look at verse 2. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. (laughs) What does that even mean? Well, Mark tells us. Thank you, Mark. That is unwashed. Some of Jesus' disciples ate with dirty fingers. And all the moms in the room are like, shame on you boys. (laughs) Well, it is a good habit to wash your hands for goodness sake. Well, that's not really the point of the text. I'll get to that in a moment. The Greek word here that is translated, that Mark uses, that's translated into the, how the ESV talks about it with the word defiled, but it can also mean other things. This word is koinos. It most often uh, just means common in the Bible. It's the way it's typically translated into English. It's something that's common. Mark, knowing the, or the, I should say, the translators of your English Bible, knowing the intent of the word, the, the uh, what would it be, the connotation of the word that is used here, they translate it into the English word defiled. So defiled or common, it's anything that is, it references anything that's impure or unworthy of God's presence. God being completely holy, right? Something that is koinos, being common, would be something that is unworthy of being in the presence of God. That's the, 
I guess, the thrust behind the word. Now, remember that Mark is writing his gospel to whom? He's writing to the church in Rome. Probably most of these Christian brothers and sisters that Mark goes to church with and as an overseer of the church in Rome that he's over, most of them were Gentiles. They did not have the background in Judaism that, say, for instance, Matthew in writing his gospel, writing to the Jews, right? He can assume this. He can assume the background there. But Mark, he doesn't have that same assurance. He knows that many of them are not going to understand what he's talking about. And so that's why he goes on to explain at the end of verse 2, if you look at the very end of the verse, right, that that the word defiled here, the way he's using it, he wants it to be crystal clear what the issue is, and he says they didn't wash their hands before eating. This is the problem. The reason that the disciples' hands were defiled is that they didn't wash before they took in food. Now, it's important for us to realize as we look at this idea in Scripture and then try to make application of it into what this could possibly mean for us today, right? It's important for us to understand that there is nowhere in the Old Testament where this law or the Old Testament law where this is a requirement. In other words, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that you have to wash your hands before you eat a meal. Jesus' disciples are not breaking the law here. They're not going against Old Testament law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law would not have been able to chapter verse this and say, hey, it says in Leviticus chapter 3 that you ought to wash your hands before you eat. That's not what's going on here. They're not breaking the law with this behavior. Now, priests were required by the Old Testament law to wash their hands before they offered sacrifices. They could talk about that. And indeed, in the book of Exodus, they were required to both wash their hands and their feet before entering into the tabernacle at all. So they could talk about that. But nowhere in the Old Testament law did it say that in order to eat a meal, you had to wash your hands. So I mean, I'm coming to this and I'm thinking, so what gives? What's the big deal? What is the basis then of their accusation? Well, it's this. Through the centuries, the rabbis and the teachers of the law added more and more and more to the Old Testament law, more ritual requirements. And and it became more and more expected for all people to wash their hands before they ate. We've talked about this before. It was a few months ago, I think back in chapter 2 or 3, my memory's failing me, but these extra rules that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law added onto Scripture became known as the tradition of the elders. And Mark is going to reference this in the very next verse we're going to look at. And again, we might look at this and think, well, yeah, but it's a good rule. It's a really good idea to wash your hands before you eat. How many of you would say it's a really good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Let me see your hands. Those of you who don't have your hands up, I don't want to eat with you. I don't want you to pass me food, especially if you just use the bathroom, you know. 
Well, again, let's, let's stay focused on what we're really talking about here because it is a, a good idea. It's what parents teach their children today. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful idea to wash your hands before you eat, so please don't take that away from the message. Pastor Terry thinks you shouldn't wash your hands before you eat. That's not the point. What's happening here? This was not a question of hygiene, church. This was a question of ritual purity. This was a question of what made someone holy? What makes someone righteous? What puts someone in good standing before the Lord, before the righteous judge who judges us, who watches our lives? That's what this is about. We know it's not a question of hygiene just because of the practice itself. The, this is kind of funny to me. The amount of water that the rabbis and the teachers of the law would often use simply would not be enough to clean your hands. Often there would be a little basin, and they would take like a pinch of water, and they would cup their hand like this, and they would, you know, let it run through their fingers. And that was enough. That was the ritual. Well, I mean, we have medical professionals in the room. Is that how you ought to wash your hands? No, I don't think so, right? No soap, no water, no hot water. What do they tell us through the COVID, you know, epidemic, right? 30 seconds plus or whatever, right? So that's not what's happened here. This isn't an issue of hygiene. This is about something altogether different. The point is that this was a ritual that developed. It was a tradition a tradition that became a part of their custom, which became an expectation. That expectation meant if you did it, you were righteous. If you didn't do it, you certainly were not righteous. You were unholy, and you were not in good standing with the righteous judge. Well, that's not all of of what they did. Mark goes on, and he This is an editorial comment by Mark. Mark just wants to give, again, his very Gentile group of readers who did not have a background in Judaism. He wanted to give them some more information on this and on the Pharisees and the Jews and how they operated. So he writes, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, ritualistically, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And again, we could get caught up in this and say, well, yeah, but this is all good stuff. Sure, for hygiene. But not something that makes you ritually clean or unclean. Here's the point. The Pharisees believed that salvation came from ethnic separation. We, as the nation of Israel, are to be altogether different than the nations, than the ethnicities that surround us. We are to be separate. We are Jehovah's called out ones. They believe that they were saved by keeping themselves pure. And how could they be sure to keep themselves pure? Now, we, we talked about this before, but if, if you're new to us or it's been, been a bit here, 
let me remind you, the way the teachers of the law, the rabbis, the Pharisees, believed that they could keep themselves pure is through the tradition of the elders that they had written all of these extra rules, rule after rule, ritual after ritual, regulation after regulation, that they piled up on the word of God. This wasn't enough. And so they added to it more and more and more. Or we used, months ago, we used that image of they had created a fence around God's law. Let's keep people far away. If we, if we had enough rules to the way we ought to live our lives, if we build out the moral code enough, then there's no possible way that any one of us could cross the line and sin because we're staying so far away from it. Now, that sounds good in a way, doesn't it? And I do think that we as Christians, in a sense, need to think more like that, that the question should never be, how far can I get to the edge? I'm getting older and my agility is not as good. I'm really afraid I'm going to go down right now. But, you know, I get to the edge. How, how close can I get before I fall? And, and living the Christian life, I don't think that should be the way we ask the question. The question should be, how close can I get to the cross? How close can I get to Jesus as far away from the edge as possible, living righteously so that I don't even have to worry about it? But that's different than what's happening here. Because they were building out their tradition, as we will see on things that were not found on the pages of Scripture. And they believed if you followed these extra rules, then you could be sure to not violate the law. So they believed. The tradition of the elders that Mark references here was probably still passed down orally in the time of Jesus. So the way this would work is each rabbi would train his students in the tradition. So if I was a rabbi, rabbi, if I was a teacher in Israel and I accumulated a group of followers, I would speak it to them, the tradition of the elders, over and over and over. And I would expect that they followed it. That's actually a big part of what happens here in the story. But I would train them. I would teach them this. And I would say it to them over and over and over. Before you eat, make sure you ritually wash your hands. And I would practice it in front of them. I would demonstrate it for them. I would teach it to them, and I would live it out. And that rabbi would train his students that way. And then that, those students would grow up and become rabbis, and they would train their students that way. And those students would grow up and become rabbis, and they would train their students that way. And so at the time of Christ, this is still all oral. It's not until about 200 A.D. that the Mishnah, which is the Jewish document, you, you could still buy one on Amazon, if you'd like to see it, what this, what this all looked like. The, it wasn't until 200 A.D. that the Mishnah was codified. It was written down. It was solidified into a written document 200 years after Christ lived. The thing we need to understand about this is that the Pharisees considered this tradition, the tradition of the elders, to be authoritative. They considered it 
to be on the same level as Scripture. It was just as authoritative as the law itself in their thinking. Now, look at verse 5. Notice that they don't accuse the disciples of breaking the law in verse 5. They accuse them of breaking the tradition. They're very clear about this. There's really no reason for us to, to wonder what their accusation is because they make it crystal clear. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? These men knew their Old Testament very well. They know that there was no law at all requiring people to wash their hands before eating. The disciples weren't breaking the law, they were breaking the tradition. So again, why do they ask Jesus this question? If the disciples were committing the sin in their thinking, why did they not go to the disciples directly? Well, I think for two reasons. One, they're concerned the reason they had traveled the 90 miles from Jerusalem to Capernaum was to trip him up so that they could discredit him. That was the whole reason for their journey. But number two, it was, as I just said, the responsibility of a rabbi to train his disciples in the way of the tradition so that when they became rabbis, they would train their disciples in the way of the tradition. And so they go to Christ. They attack him because Jesus did not uphold the tradition. He didn't, do it them, he, he didn't do it himself, and he didn't teach it. He didn't teach it to his followers. So they get his attention. But this is classic Jesus right here. They get Christ's attention, but he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't respond to the accusation. Notice what he doesn't do, first of all. First of all, he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't address the issue of ritual purity with them. He's going to. We'll look at that next Sunday morning. He will speak to the crowd about this issue of ritual purity and what makes you clean or unclean. That's next week's passage. And then his disciples aren't going to understand. Go figure, right? But the boys are going to come at him and say, now explain this to us because we're really lost here. And, And he's going to go into more detail with them. But his initial response To the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he does not answer their question. Notice also that he doesn't defend the disciples' behavior. He doesn't give a defense for them. Why? I think it's because he understands what his accusers are doing. They're attacking him in order to discredit him among the people And so instead of offering a defense for behavior that doesn't need to be defended, instead of entering into the game that they want to play with him, he goes on offense. He says, you know what? You guys are a joke. This is my paraphrase. This ad lib, my ad lib here. You guys are a joke. This is so not even what this is about. And he attacks them. And he attacks the tradition of the elders. And we see that in verses 6 through 8. Let's read it. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Not a nice word to call somebody. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And here it is, church, if you underline in your Bible or highlight on your phone, 
This is what you should highlight right here. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They hold up their man-made rules to be on the same level as the very word of the living God. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Jesus, the good shepherd, turns the table on these guys, on these bad shepherds who had been leading people astray generation after generation, decade after decade, century after century. We looked at many of these passages in the last few weeks in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, God's indictment on the bad shepherds of Israel. And these shepherds had been leading people in the wrong direction, upholding the rules of men over the word of God. And Jesus, he's had enough. He's had enough, and he lets loose on them. There is, church, such a thing as righteous anger. <laughs> and we can only look to Christ to see the best example of that. But Israel's teachers had been teaching these traditions instead of God's commands. So let's look at the word itself for a second. Hupokrotes uh, is the Greek word here. It's very obviously, let me say it for you slowly, hupokrotes. Sounds a whole lot like our English word hypocrite, doesn't it? It's where we get our English word hypocrite from. It originally meant an actor or a pretender. That was the original etymology of the word, but it's, of course, taken on its own meaning through the centuries. It's, it's someone who claims to be one thing, but it's actually another. And so Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet here. Jesus quotes the prophecy of Isaiah to give an indictment on his accusers. The Pharisees, the scribes, we're only giving God lip service, not true heart devotion. And this is so important as we begin to look at application here. They looked pious. They had impeccably observed so many rules, living by a rigid moral code. They were religious people. However, it was a moral code developed by men. And they had elevated this tradition above the actual word of God. Look at, uh, look at verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, Christ says. They prided themselves on keeping the law. If you had asked any Pharisee, any teacher of the law during this time, do you keep the law of God? They, of course. I keep the law of God perfectly. Well, I'm sure they didn't, but they would have thought they did. However, in their devotion to their tradition, they not only broke God's law, but they taught people to break God's law. Now, how did they do that? That's the example that Jesus gives next, the rest of our passage this morning, verses 10 through 13. Starting in verse 10, Jesus provides a very clear example of how the Pharisees and teachers of the law had led people into sin. Let's look at this together. Mark 7.10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. When Jesus makes this statement, he's quoting, I put them both on the screen for you there, he's quoting from two 
different passages in Exodus. He's kind of doing a, an Exodus mashup, taking a couple of verses and, and putting them together here. But Exodus 20.12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God has given you. And then Exodus 21.17, just a chapter later, God's law says, Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Parents, great verse to remind your children of once in a while. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, of course, we've moved on from that. Though every parent has been tempted by this verse. Let me tell you. Among the highest values in biblical times was the honoring of your parents. It was expected. Now, don't miss this because it's so important for what Jesus is going to say next. It was expected that you would care for your aged parents. They were your responsibility. You as adult children had an expectation to financially care for their needs. It was one of the highest values of their moral code. God had commanded it. God had commanded that people honor their parents. However, And here's the point that Jesus is making. The tradition of the elders had created ways for people to work around the command of God. Don't miss this, okay? They had created a rule, I'll explain it to you here in a second, where people didn't have to obey the law of God. They could replace it with something else. But what was that something else? It wasn't another one of God's laws because God's law never contradicts itself. It was a rule of man. And this is what the rabbis had done through the centuries. It's what Jesus talks about next in verses 11 through 12. He says, but you say, you rabbis, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you bad shepherds, is what Christ is saying. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother... Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. I'll explain Corbin in a second. Mark gives a brief explanation there. That is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So what's this all about? First of all, we need to understand Corbin. Corbin in itself was not a bad thing. Corbin was just a word or a designation used for a gift to God, a sacrificial offering. If someone made a sacrifice to the Lord, an offering to God, they called it Corbin. That, in a very general sense, of course, is good. It's, it's the, an individual saying, I will make this vow today. I will give this to the Lord. And that, of course, could be a very good thing, as long as the offering doesn't violate the law of God. And that was the problem. You see, the tradition of the elders allowed children to, adult children, to withhold financial support to their parents by declaring the funding to be Corbin. So they could say, Mom, Dad, the money that I was going to use to care for you in your old age is a gift to God. I'm making that vow today. It's a gift to God. So, Mom, Dad, you're out of luck. Have fun down at the food pantry. I don't know. Actually, there wasn't a network for that kind of thing. It's why it was the responsibility of the children. 
But that's what they could do. Now, there were three fundamental problems with this. Let me walk, walk you through these quickly. At least three fundamental issues with this system. First of all, it was a way actually to keep the money for themselves. Because the tradition of the elders, the rabbis, allowed the individual, if they had made that vow before God, given it as a gift to the Lord as Corbin, they, it, they still allowed those individuals to spend the money on themselves. It could be completely based. The motivation behind it could be completely selfish. And it could be based in personal greed. According to the tradition, they could still use that money. They could still spend it on themselves. They just couldn't spend it on anyone else. So sorry, Mom and Dad, once again, you're out of luck here. It was a way for them to get out of the responsibility of caring for their parents. A responsibility, remember, that God put on them in the law and to keep the money for their own purposes. So that was the first problem. The second issue with this, second problem, is that you couldn't go back on the decision. Once you had made that vow to God, you couldn't retract it. And so maybe you made it at a very emotional point or a time when you weren't thinking about the ramifications, the consequences of what this would mean for your parents. And so you made this vow, but maybe later on you thought about it or you thought, oh, no, I need to care for my parents. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law would not allow you to retract that. Dr. William Lane writes about this and says, Should the son regret his action and seek to alleviate the harsh vow which would deprive his parents of all the help they might normally expect from him, he would be told by the scribes that his vow was valid and must be honored. The tradition of the elders did not allow the child to rescind the oath if they wanted to later help their parents. So that's problem number two. Uh, third problem, can I say it very simply, is it was sin. To do this was pure and simply sin. It's the biggest problem with Corbin. And it's the one that Jesus addresses so clearly in verse 13. It's on the screen for you. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Dr. Mark Strauss writes about this idea, and he says, Jesus sums up the essential problem by following their human traditions. They have nullified God's law. Jesus condemns this use of Corbin not just because honor for parents supersedes vow-taking, but because the selfish motives behind such traditions are contrary to the heart of God and the true spirit of the law. Well, let's bring this home. How should we apply what we've studied this morning? Because these practices in and of themselves, right, are not necessarily relevant to our church life. But there still is a very, very, very important principle here, church, that we cannot afford to miss here at Fellowship. But first of all, let me distinguish quickly between tradition and traditionalism, because I don't want there to be any confusion here as we leave of, of what we've been talking about today and what the application ought to be in looking at this passage. Traditions can be very good. Can we start there? There's nothing wrong with tradition. They can enrich our lives. 
And they can also be wonderful ways to communicate truth. Often, traditions become traditions because we find that it works. It's effective. Like one, I, this just popped into my head, but we've started doing trunk or treat here, uh, uh, at, you know, near Halloween. I think that is a wonderful event. It, it, had, it was very effective. It was very successful. Uh, we had a parking lot full of happy, smiling families. And it was a way for a lot of people in our church to serve. Anybody else think it was good or is it just me? Okay, good. Just checking because maybe it's just my tradition and maybe I need to not be so fixated on it. <laughs> but there might come a day when trunk or treat stops being effective and maybe we need to do something else. There's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with developing traditions. There's nothing wrong with having a Christmas program. Right? There's nothing wrong with doing some of the things that we typically do, and often we keep doing those things because they're effective and they work. They accomplish their purpose. They enrich our lives in some way. On a more significant level, the scriptural basis for this, I put a couple passages there for you. The, the Apostle Paul encouraged Christ followers to hold on to the traditions he had passed on to them. Now, I think primarily what Paul is talking about in these verses is the gospel message itself, but there may also be some methodology behind this. There may also be some traditions that are part of what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 says, Now I command, commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He writes to the Thessalonians and says, So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by your letter. And so it's good. It's good for us to hold, uphold traditions that are based in the gospel and are based in biblical truth. That's a good thing. However, let us be very wary of traditionalism here at Fellowship because this is altogether different. Let's Let's be careful of elevating our ideas to be on the same level as the Word of God. Because traditionalism is characterized by two other ideas, and they're there for you, hypocrisy and legalism. And I don't have time to dig deep into these. They could be, each of them, a message in themselves. But hypocrisy is claiming to be one thing but actually being another. Well, how does that play out in our passage this morning? Well, the Pharisees claimed to uphold the Word of God, but they were actually teaching people to break the Word of God, to go against the Word of God because of their tradition. That's not good. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites. Legalism is when we place any man-made rule on the same level as the Word of God, or, or even put it in place of the Word of God. Let's be careful, church, with that. This book is so powerful. It, it, it has the power to transform our lives. This is what Jesus said to the 12 disciples before he went to the cross. He said, look, you guys have already been pruned. 
changed, transformed. How? Because of my words. Studying it, knowing it, meditating on it, memorizing it will radically transform your life. Amen? Do you know that to be true? It changes us. Nothing, nothing, church, is on the same level as Scripture. Let's be careful of falling into legalism here at Fellowship. That's what the Pharisees and scribes had done. They had elevated their tradition to the level of God's law. Let me just throw out a lifeline to a couple of men a lot smarter than me. Dr. R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, when religious authorities bind, he's talking about today, please note this, when religious authorities, pastors, leaders, Sunday school teachers, elders of a church, when religious authorities bind people's consciences, where God has left them free, adding human regulations to the law of God, that is the worst and most devastating form of legalism. Here is the irony. Every time we add to the law of God, we inevitably subtract from it. Because instead of putting our attention on the things that God is concerned about, human regulations cause us to lose sight of what concerns him. The major problem with legalism is that it is a subtle form of idolatry. It elevates that which is human above that which is divine. It substitutes human traditions, human policies, human regulations for the very word of God. So I was thinking about this. I thought, i got to give them a good example. Sometimes I don't know how much to drill down. Because I don't want to, I don't want to do, is if right now the Holy Spirit is speaking to you on something, I don't want to give you an example that takes you off course from what God is talking to you about. So can I just say that, that right now if God is convicting you of a tradition that you have elevated to the same level as God's Word, go with that. You can, you can flat out ignore my example I'm about to give. But in the Baptist denomination, this is one of those risky moments, by the way, that I take as a pastor. In the Baptist denomination, here's a good example of what I think we're talking about here. I grew up in this denomination thinking that we ought to evaluate someone's spirituality and even keep them from membership in a church based on whether or not they have a glass of wine with dinner. And there was total silence in the room. That if someone would so dare to have a beer with their steak, they were committing some grievous sin that would mean that we couldn't possibly fellowship with them. You know, I was in my 30s. I was saved when I was 10. I was discipled in a church just like fellowship. I had served as a pastor in a church just like fellowship. And it hit me one day, having a glass of wine is not a sin. And a beer is not a sin. 
in our denomination for decades has made that some kind of litmus test to judge someone's spirituality by. Even though Jesus drank, Paul told Timothy, have some wine. Jesus made wine and made mass quantities of it, mind you. John chapter 2, if you need the proof text. And we have made this a litmus test to judge the righteousness of a person. And here was the kicker for me when this sunk in a few years after that. And how many times did I hear growing up in my denomination about caring for the poor? Almost never. Your righteousness is judged by whether or not you like beer with steak. But nothing was ever said about the second most dominant theme in the Word of God. Church, I can personally think of no better example of the traditions of men being elevated over the Word of God. Our denomination needs to repent of that. And I'm, I'm very thankful that we at Fellowship do not have uh, abstinence from alcohol clause because I think it's created an incredible amount of confusion in our denomination. The Bible says do not get drunk on wine. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not encouraging everyone to go hit the bar after church. <laughs> the Bible says do not be drunk on wine. But let us be careful. Let us be careful of elevating our traditions over the Word of God. And the Word of God says, if you're not caring for the poor, church, then you're not living like a sheep. The parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25. Read it this afternoon. God's Word gives us these things that we must take to heart, that we must know, we must study, we must get to know the Word of God, and then we must live it out as followers of Christ. Amen? Let us be careful of adding anything else to this. This is enough, isn't it? Isn't this enough? Isn't it sufficient? It's absolutely necessary. The Westminster Confession said it so well. It's our perfect guide for faith and practice. We need nothing other than this book, church. This is what we need. All 66 books, the inerrant, the infallible, the authoritative, God-breathed word, the Bible. Let us not add a single thing to it. I will end with this quote. I'm not sure what happened there, but I'm going to get to it. I'm not letting you out the door without seeing this, because this is Dr. Warren Wearsby, a very conservative Bible scholar who said this, we must constantly beware lest tradition takes the place of truth. He's talking to churches today. We must constantly beware lest tradition takes the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in the light of God's Word and to be courageous enough to make changes. What's Dr. Wearsby saying? He's saying very clearly, look, if your traditions don't line up with God's Word, jettison them. 
they're not worth following. If they're not in alignment with what Scripture teaches, get rid of them. This is enough for us. This is all we need. Let's continue to build Fellowship Baptist Church on the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Amen? Amen. 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 Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come and join me. All we need is the Word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. 66 books, God-breathed, authoritative, inerrant, life-giving truth. On these 66 books of the Bible, let's stand. Would you stand, please, and let's sing.